Would you remain standing as we honor God and his word? It's Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our series through the seven letters. There's a Bible in the seat back pocket in front of you, or you can follow along in the screen behind me as we go through the series, Can You Hear Me Now? Can you hear me now to the church in Laodicea, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, he's been around since the beginning. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, this is what you're boasting about to everybody, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. I've underlined this in my Bible, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So I've underlined this as well, be zealous and repent. It's the only time we hear that in the seven letters. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, the one who gets the point of the message, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I'm grateful for this letter to the church of Laodicea and ask now, here, the church of Coast Hills, that we would hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. Please have your seat. A couple of areas of scripture you're going to want to be in. Revelation chapter 3, we're continuing our study. It's the last of the seven letters. And maybe you take your journal out. And I'm so proud of you guys because some of you have already written all of your note pages and you're into a new journal. Um, as well in that journal, you will note there are letters from our elders. Now, we don't believe those letters are inspired, but they have been prayed through to uh, send to a message to our church. And so uh, we pray that you've also read the letters in that journal. But we're going to be in Revelation 3. We're also going to be in Hebrews 12. So you're going to want to put your finger in there as well. Hebrews chapter 12, taking note, the title of today's message, simply be zealous, be zealous. How many of you are parents? If you're a parent, raise your hand. Okay. How many of your parents? Great. Hands down, got a question for you. Have you ever have, have you ever had to deliver a difficult message to your kids? A, something where they've done something wrong and you've got to have a difficult conversation with them to give them some form of truth. Any parent in the room say amen. Okay. Maybe your kids are better than mine and you've never had to say things to your kids and give them the hard truth. Well, I have found with my kids, there's one of two ways they'll take it. They'll reject it or they will receive it. Now, sometimes they will reject and then receive and they find themselves in the middle. In fact, I asked my daughter, Selah, can I use you as an example? She said, yes, as the one daughter who always receives what her father says to her. 
And I said, Selah. And she said, if you want to use me as an illustration, that's how you can use me. Someone who receives. Well, sometimes there's a rejection and there's a kind of a hemming and a haw of how to receive this truth. Well, Jesus, in essence, he had 12 sons. In essence, he had 12 disciples that he was raising up into ministry. Well, these 12 sons were kind of like Jacob's 12 sons in a sense. Oh, you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons he was raising, and these would become the 12 tribes of Israel. The apostles are now the, the, the new 12 tribes in a sense of Israel, the 24 that we saw in Revelation chapter 4 when we studied Revelation of the complete church. And so we see these 12 sons of Jesus, these 12 sons of Jacob. Well, Jacob had some issues with his kids, and he had to give them hard truth. There was a time when, well, Dinah, his daughter, had been taken advantage of, and Simeon and Levi came up with a great way to deal with the issue and killed all the men in Shechem. Well, Jacob looks at him and goes, what have you done? He's got to deliver a pretty hard truth. Everyone around us is now going to hate us because of what you've done. Well, Jesus, like Jacob raising some kids, 12 of them, I mean, he had to deliver some hard truths. One time he told his disciples they were faithless. So he told them. Then one time he was really upset with them and he goes, you're a perverse generation. These were hard things to tell his 12 disciples. But Jesus, you, I can rest assured, he was a little bit different than Jacob. Jesus, he announces himself, is the amen. Jesus is the truth. That's what this word means. John, he's introduced us to this word, just a page to the left. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. Just a page over to the left. There in verse 7, we will see this word being used again. Look how Jesus introduces himself. John is using this text. Verse 7, he says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, everyone say... Amen. The truth. And here's what John is reporting. It's the truth. Jesus is coming again, no matter how you feel about it. Amen. It is the truth. And Jesus says, I am the amen to this church in Laodicea. And I'm the faithful and the true witness. That's important. Because he's got a message to deliver to the Laodiceans that's going to be hard. And he's letting them know, listen, this is the truth. You can receive it. You can reject it. It's a hard message. But you need to know, I am the faithful and true witness. Now, I don't know if you know this. But here in the United States of America, there are three things that qualify you to be a faithful witness. And so the first of which is that you have the ability to perceive. Well, Jesus, he fulfills that one. He can look in your heart and read what your heart is thinking and perceive what your heart is thinking before it ever comes out of your mouth. He's God. He's sovereign. Second, listen, that you have the ability to remember, that you can actually remember things. Jesus, he's all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know because he's God. Check number two, he fulfills that faithful and true witness. Number three, that you're able to narrate in an understandable manner what you witnessed. Can I remind you, 
Jesus is referred to as the word of God. He's done a very good job of communicating in a very understandable language the truth about God. And if you don't think he's faithful and true as a witness, he reminds the church, I've been around since the beginning of God's creation. I was there and spoke it to existence. Laodiceans, I know I know what I'm saying because I've seen it all and I know exactly what to say to you. But remember, I told you he's a little bit different than Jacob. He might be a little bit different than us and our parenting. Because sometimes as parents, we just need to tell our kids the truth. No matter how they receive it or reject it or whatever, we got to tell them the truth. But Jesus, Jesus is not only truthful, Jesus is loving. Take a look at Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There's a reason a mom yells as loud as she can, Johnny! As he's running out into the street. The only reason she's disciplining him in that harsh, loud manner is because she wants her child to live. She wants her child to succeed. Every parent wants their child to succeed. And discipline, according to the Bible, discipline is a part of that success. Now listen, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see something. Hebrews chapter 12, because the writer of Hebrews is going to give us a little bit more of understanding in regard to this God disciplines the son he loves. Take a look if you would. It's chapter 12, verse 5. I'm going to start right there in the middle. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in all which have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, you don't care about someone else that's not your child, right? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? And that word is so key. God wants us to have abundant life. And part of the abundant life is his discipline because he loves us. For they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, here's a truth for my kids. I'm sure it's a truth for yours. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Key point of discipline. Because I don't know about you, when I'm walking into the room to discipline my kids, my kids aren't going, woohoo, here comes dad. We are about to get disciplined. Come on, everybody, turn the music on. It's party time. That's not what happens at my house, right? I'm sure it's not what happens at your house. I'm sure this, like, oh, great, we're going to be disciplined because no discipline seems good for the time. In fact, sometimes my kids will go, it's too harsh. Well, dad, you're grounding me too long. Well, this is too much. No other parent would do this to their kids, dad. I mean, Sally did this last week and she gets to go to homecoming dance. I don't know why I can't. And now now I'm in an age where my kids have kids. I love it. Because I've gotten the phone call. Dad, I am so sorry. 
I promised myself I would never do the things you did to me. I did it today. You were right. And I love saying, I told you so. I love the sorry. But it's amazing to me that no discipline seems good. And that's why Jesus always speaks the truth with love. In a very truthful, loving way, he says to this church, you're lukewarm. Now, the Laodiceans, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. About 10 miles to the north was a a happening city called Hierapolis. This was kind of the Las Vegas of the church of the area of Asia Minor. This was where everyone went to party. It was like party city. There were hot springs. There was clubs. There was saunas. I mean, everything was going on at Hierapolis, but there was so much water, so much hot springs coming up out of the ground. They decided to build an aqueduct all the way to Colossae. Well, this hot water would pass on that aqueduct straight through Laodicea all the way to Colossae, about 28 miles away. But by the time the hot water got to Laodicea in the aqueduct, you still couldn't drink it. It wasn't cool enough yet. 10 miles down the road to Colossae, oh, it was cool enough for everybody to drink. But by the time it got to Laodicea, nobody wanted to drink lukewarm water on a hot day. They just spit it out. He says to them, you're lukewarm. But when Jesus says these terms to help them understand something, it's a spiritual thing for something they're physically walking through. And he defines what it is right there in verse 19. Would you look with me at Revelation chapter 3? Go back with me to Revelation 3 and take a look with me at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So underline this, be zealous. This church was lacking in zeal. Underline this in your Bible. Be zealous. Let me tell you something. No coach wants a player on the field that doesn't have heart at a championship game. I know that. I showed up at a championship. I was part of a four-man relay race. I didn't want to be there. I don't know where I want to be. I don't know if the surf was up or something, but I had a bad attitude. And I was, I'm the, I was the ringer, right? I was number four, bring it home, okay? And I walked into that team, and I kind of went to the pool deck, and I was swimming like this. I'm like, okay, I'll do this and get it done. You know what my coach did? He pulled me from the relay. And he looked at me and he goes, you know what? You got a lot of skill, but you got no heart. And I'd rather put someone in who's got heart and no skill because they'll help us win the race. I learned a powerful lesson. No coach wants an apathetic person on their team. And beside the fact he's pointing it out, a lack of zeal really bothers Jesus. A lack of zeal, a lack of passion bothers Jesus because he set the example of what passion is. In fact, we call his cross the passion of Christ. He didn't march up to the cross. I can't believe I have to do this. No, he did it with passion for you and for me. He set the foundation of what passion looks like. I want you to understand this. Paul, he helps us. Maybe write down your notes. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 11. Listen carefully. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He laid the foundation of zeal. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's good stuff, okay? 
Or you can build on it with wood, hay, and straw. Not so good. Because each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it's going to be revealed by fire. Fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Very important. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he's going to suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, it'll only be as through fire. Here's what Paul is helping us understand. Jesus has set the foundation, a zealous foundation for his kingdom. But he's not just concerned about you building on it. He's concerned about the way you build on it. You can build on it with gold. Oh, those are the things that'll make it through a fire. But you build on it with wood, hay, and stubble. I do a fire every night at my house. I go to bed and I let the embers set. By the time I come out in the morning, it's gone. There's nothing there. So you've got to decide not just the fact that you're going to build on Jesus, but the way that you're going to build on Jesus because it matters to him. Apathy bothers him. Give me an example. One of the heroes of faith. It's Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. Take a look at the screen. Nehemiah 4, 6. Hero of faith, filled with zeal, hears from God, goes back to Israel, and he's building a wall. So he says, so we built the wall. God told me to do it. I built on that foundation, but I want you to see the way he built the wall. Take a look. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. Look carefully, for the people had a mind to work. It wasn't just simply about the fact that they had to build a wall. Oh, let's put, let's go ahead and put a stone on. Let's put another stone. I can't believe we got to do it. No, these people were passionate. They were so passionate. They built an entire wall around Jerusalem in 50 days. They were filled with zeal. Jesus is trying to point this out to this church. They have no zeal. And he's trying to get the message across to them that they have no zeal because they don't realize it. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, go look at verse 17 if you would. For you say, this is what you're telling everybody. I'm rich, I prosper, I don't need nothing. Underline this, not realizing, not realizing. This church, they're not the hypocrites. They're not preaching something that they don't believe. They're not hypocrites. They're just ignorant. He says to them, you don't realize. They actually believe they're good because they're so rich. They actually believe they're good because everything they do is prospering. They actually believe that they're okay because they need nothing. This was the church of Laodicea, man. They had every, they had a big building. They, I mean, everyone wanted to go to Laodicea and see the Laodicean church. They had gifts and skills and talents. I mean, everybody was looking at Laodicea as like the model church. And they're like, yes, we are rich. We are prosperous. We need actually nothing. We've got everything the world can offer. We are blessed of God. Jesus is rocking their theology because there was a theology in the first century world. If you're blessed and you're wealthy and you're healthy, then you must be blessed of God. If you've got leprosy, if you're sick and you're poor, then God is against you. It was a first century doctrine that goes all the way back to Job. 
Job's friends showed up on the scene and said, you must have done something to really get God mad because nobody has gone through what you're going through. So I got to tell you, and God rebukes Job's friends. This theology, oh, it's a theology of, listen, if you've got everything, you must be blessed of God. In fact, first century world, rich young ruler shows up on the scene. And he shows up and he's wearing all of his clothes and he's got everything he needs. And he comes in with a great question. He goes, hey, <laughs> Jesus, how you doing, little guy? Just want to know, <laughs> how can I be saved? Jesus looks at him, knowing what he's thinking. And he says, hey, I want you to go and, uh, he says, no, I, you know what the Bible says. The Bible says, I want you to follow all the commandments. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> Can't you see how wealthy I am? I've been doing that a long time. Look how blessed I am. I've got everything you can possibly imagine. I've been doing the commandments a long time. Jesus now rocks his theology. He says to the man, now go sell everything you got and give to the poor. And the rich man walks away. Jesus don't run after him. And the disciples are looking and going, who can be saved? Because they believe the theology as well. I mean, if that guy, blessed of God, walks away and we believe that you're the only way, I mean, who can be saved? I can't, I mean, I don't understand this because they caught the lie. They believed, listen, you got everything. You must be blessed of God. But Jesus, he deals with that theology and he calls it the deceitfulness of riches. It's Matthew chapter 13. It's a parable of a piece of a seed that falls in some ground and the ground chokes the seed that is trying trying to grow because of the deceitfulness of riches. And he's rocking the theology. He says to them, you think you're good because you got so much. But spiritually, spiritually, you've put your investment in the wrong place. Paul deals with this. It's Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, he says, listen, I want to thank you, church, for caring for me. I want to thank you, church, for sharing with me because what you've given me is actually going to your heavenly account. And so often we get confused with what's right in front of us with instead of what's going to be before us. And Paul gives the church an accolade and says, listen, you've done it. You have taken care of what God is going to credit to your account. It's your generosity even here at this church. It's an opportunity to say to uh, Pastor George, listen, we're with you and we believe in what God is doing through you for the sake of the gospel because we're more concerned and we consider the gospel so valuable as compared to Laodicea. See, from God's perspective, they weren't rich at all. From God's perspective, he calls them rich, wretched, and pitiable. In other words, you look like a bum to me. He, he, he says to them, you think you're prosperous, like you're looking around and you can buy whatever you want. You got no issues and you think you are just prosperous. And he says to me, you're blind. You, you don't even see the truth. He says to them, you think you got need of nothing? You're all dressed and all fancy and everyone's looking at you and they think, wow, look what everything they have. And he says to them, you're like the emperor's new clothes. 
You're walking around naked spiritually. You have no idea. You've got nothing on. Nothing on. Gang, this is a hard message. I mean, think of Jesus having to send this because he loves them. This message, you've placed your value into the things of the world instead of the things of the word. You're concerned about how much money you have and you're concerned about what you look like and what you wear. And you're seeing things from a wrong perspective. Jesus says, listen, I dealt with this in Matthew chapter 6. Listen to what he says. He goes, all right. He's speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking this constitution of the kingdom. He's looking at his disciples and he says to them, now why would you invest into the world where, thing, where moth and rust destroy? So he says to him, why would, why would you put your treasure in the things that are going to be destroyed. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So much so, to drive the point home in Luke 12, he tells another story. And this is the story. There's a guy. And he looks around at all of his stuff. And he goes, man, I got a lot of stuff. I need to build a bigger barn so I can put more of my stuff inside my stuff's new stuff. And then I can put more stuff in the stuff. And then I'll build another barn to get more stuff to put in my stuff. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. I'm going to enjoy, man. And Jesus says this to that man. You fool. Uh-oh. Jesus, you told us never to use that word. Why are you using that word? Because he's the amen. And he knows the most ignorant person in the world is the person that decides to put all of their value into the things of the world. He's the amen, and he knows how to use the word and say, listen, don't value the things in the world. So he says to this church, he says, buy from me. I counsel you to buy from me. Now, that's interesting, and I hope that word kind of rubs you the wrong way. Jesus, I thought you paid our price. Like, I thought you died on the cross. You rose again. What's this whole thing that I got to buy? I got to purchase something? There's a cost? Go with me to the book. Actually, I'll read it for you. It's Isaiah chapter 55. You write it in your notes. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Listen to the cost. Come. Did you hear it? Everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This don't make sense. Well, if you think practically, if you think materially, it doesn't make sense. But if you think spiritually, you catch it. Come, there's the cost. Humility. It's the humility to say, Jesus, my way is not the right way. Your way is the right way. And I will come to you and gain from you. I'm going to come to you. Jesus, he's going to help us understand what it means to come. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Take a look at the screen. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, when I choose to come, I'll find a cross. It's not just humility. 
It's also sacrifice, sacrifice of me for he. Now take a look for whoever would save his life will lose it. Here's the cost. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus, once again, making the value of the world to seem absolutely ridiculous, he says the cost is to come, and when you come, you're going to find a cross. There's humility and sacrifice as a cost choosing to come. And he says, buy from me, come to me, and I want you to buy from me. He says, I want you to buy refined gold. Refined gold so that you will be rich. Peter understood this. He defines it for us in 1 Peter chapter 1. Take a look. In this, Peter writes, you greatly rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result or to end up in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the first church viewed suffering as a result of doing some form of ungodliness. The first church looked at suffering as you must have done something wrong. In other words, suffering equals sin going all the way back to Job's friends who thought the same thing. That's not the way of God. God uses the fiery trials in our life to refine us for heaven. He has a job to do. And that job is to make us look more like Jesus. And here's what a trial does. It tests our faith. And when we go through a trial, I don't know about you, but sometimes things come out of me that I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I mean, I thought it was a praise God, glory, Jesus, hallelujah. I didn't realize I had a little bit of anger in me. I didn't realize I had resentment in me. I didn't realize I had unforgiveness in me. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this trial has revealed me to me. As soon as I find out through this trial that I got to change, I want you to write it down. Be zealous to put your faith into practice. As soon as God uses the trial and is refining the gold of your faith, you've got to be zealous to change. Be zealous to put into practice the faith that you need to grow in. Secondly, listen carefully. He said, I want you to buy from me white garments to cover up your nakedness. I want you to buy from me white garments. Jesus, Laodiceans, you are so out of style. We don't wear white in Laodicea. Buy from me white garments. Are you kidding me, Jesus? He knows exactly what to say to Laodiceans. He's the amen. See, let me tell you. The Laodiceans, they were fashion divas. I mean... You talk about Gucci, Prada, whatever it is, they had it. And let me tell you something. They produced a black wool and they made mini skirts, blouses, long flowing robes. They were the black wool people. So much so everybody wanted to wear the fashion of the Laodiceans. They were very concerned about what they looked on the outside. They were, they were the ones that produced fashion. They were the ones that brought this black wool onto the market. Jesus, we don't wear white garments. You're so out of fashion. We wear black wool. Ugh. 
I've seen that wonderful carpet thing that my wife wears. You know, it's, I call it the carpet. It's the shaw and it's red and it's carpety, you know? <laughs> I tell her all the time. I go, why do you wear the carpet? Can I buy you a new sweater? Like, the, she just loves it. She's like, it's like a blankie. She just likes to wrap it around. I go, well, let's buy a new carpet. Like, <laughs> I, I love her. Laodiceans, let me tell you something. They knew the difference between Gucci and Target. You could not pull it over on them. And here you are saying you want us to wear white garments because we're naked? Now remember, the words of Jesus are spiritual. He's telling them, spiritually, you've got nothing on. He's telling them, your priorities are messed up. You're out of whack. You're more concerned about what you look on the outside instead of what you are in the inside. You're focused on the wrong thing. No wonder scripture would say in Isaiah 61, verse 10, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he makes my inside right. He covers me with his blood. And then, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, put on the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is more concerned about what's on the inside than the outside. And so church, write it down. We've got to be zealous to make the spiritual things our priority. We've got to be focused on the inside and not just the outside. And I fear that oftentimes we're more concerned about the outside and we find ourselves in such debt trying to keep up with the Joneses instead of focusing and prioritizing the inside. I read an article yesterday that zero debt is the new rich. Church, let it not be so of us. He says, buy from me eyeglasses. I want you to buy some eye ointment. Now, I'm going to make sense of glasses. He goes, listen, I want you to buy for me gold. I want you to buy for me garments. And I want you to buy for me glasses. And when he said, I want you to buy for me an ointment for your eyes that you may see. Oh, this held, this went straight to the core of the Laodiceans. Because they had a special ointment, an eye ointment that they produced. And they convinced the world with this snake oil that it could heal and cure anything. And Asclepius had a hospital. Oh, just on the bottom of the hill of Laodicea. And hundreds of thousands of people would come just to get these eyeglasses. Take a look. This is Liberia. And you would go to the witch doctors and they would put these eyeglasses on you and they would say, listen, this will heal you of everything. Can I tell you something about the mud and the ointment that they put on the Laodiceans and the people that came from all around the world? Scientifically proven, it did nothing but make their face dirty. They were blind. They couldn't see it. They thought they could see They thought they had the truth, but they were blind. Jesus addresses that in Matthew 6. Take a look. The eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, what we perceive in our perspective is how we're going to view life. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So if you're seeing things in the right way, in the truthful way, you're good. 
But if your eye is bad, in other words, you're, you, you have a wrong perspective, but you think it's good, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, in other words, if you think you're seeing the truth, but it's really a lie, listen to what he says. How great is that darkness? So Jesus loves this church so much, and he says to him, listen, you're blind, but you think you can see. You think you're right, but you're really wrong. This is a huge problem. And he's telling the church, you got to be zealous to get your perspective from me. Not from Orange County. Not from behind the orange curtain. I want you zealous to know how I want you to live your life. And I want you to live it the way I believe you should. So his church is given a choice. He says, be zealous and repent. They're given a choice. He gives the expectation. I want you to be zealous about your faith. I want you to be zealous about spiritual things. I want you to be zealous about my perspective. And he says to him in verse 20, I'm knocking at your heart's door. You got a choice. And the choice is this. Will you let me in? Will you receive my perspective? Will you prioritize your life? Will you make the things of me more valuable than the things of this world? This church. He says to him, listen, if you think this world is valuable, if you choose to repent and change, I'm going to let you sit with me on my father's throne. You'll really know what wealth is. You'll really know what it is to prosper. You'll really know what it is to have no needs if you choose to go my way, he says. In this church, it's incredible. I know we give the church of Laodicea a hard time. But I want to tell you something about this church that maybe you don't know. They repented. And for 300 years, they lived in zeal. And in 364 AD, the council of Laodicea, hosted by the Laodiceans, 300 years later than this, the council of Laodicea, all of the big Christian people met in Laodicea, and you know what their zeal produced? The canon of scripture that you hold in your hand. They became zealous for the things of God. And at that council of Laodicea, they formed what we hold. Church, be zealous. Pray with me. Lord, let it be said of our church that we are zealous people, zealous for the things of God, zealous for you, zealous in every way, shape, or form. And now we come before you and ask, let your spirit move.